Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. Thank you for joining us this morning in person and online. Uh, 2020 is likely to be a year that none of us will ever forget. I don't remember. I couldn't tell you exactly what happened in 2015. I can generally remember that those every four years there's uh, some Summer Olympics and an election. We missed the Summer Olympics this year. Uh, but 2020, I don't think anyone's ever going to forget. We'll always remember what this year was like, and we don't even know how it's going to finish, but... I remember around 2018, a lot of people started looking forward to 2020 and saying it's going to be a year for vision because it's 2020, right? 2020 vision, and a lot of people are corny, and so they thought that, you know, oh, 2020 vision, well, that'll be the year, that's what I'm looking forward to, that's the year for breakthrough. I know that a lot of churches and denominations and church networks saw 2020 as almost like this... uh, uh, it was almost like the way we saw the year 2000. It's like a fresh decade, start of a new thing. Let's institute some new 10-year plans. Let's set some goals. Let's establish some strategies. We even did a little bit of that here at Truvine. What a joke that all is, right? What plans of yours have still come into fruition this year? I mean, almost none probably, right? 2020, for many people, they anticipated that it would be a year of vision, And John Eric said something to me about six weeks ago that has stuck with me ever since. We were were kind of joking about this idea, 2020 year of vision, right? And he said, it has been a year of vision. We're actually seeing things more clearly than we ever have. And when he said that, it just kind of immediately resonated in my mind, in my heart, like he's right. We are actually, I think, seeing a lot of things for what they really are. And things are being exposed. Things are being brought to the surface. Uh, I think that we're, in many ways, seeing our culture for what it really is and for some of the issues that are still deeply seated and ingrained in our culture. Those are coming to the surface, and we're seeing those things. Uh, I think we're seeing, and maybe in 2019, you might have had a theory in the back of your head that government is dysfunctional. That should be in the forefront of your mind at this point, that government is dysfunctional and that there's not alignment from the top to the bottom uh, and everyone's uh, doing what they see is right in their own eyes, which is very bad news in the Bible when everyone does what they think is right in their own eyes. Uh, I think that we are all finding out what we're actually made of. We're finding out what our priorities are. I know that for me personally, I have discovered how much I like my own family. (laughs) I I mean, I knew I liked them. Happy birthday, dear. Uh, But I've spent more time with my family in 2020 than than in many years past, and that has reminded me the priority of family and the priority of home and being home-oriented. And uh, I think maybe that's something that I had forgot or gotten lost in the shuffle, and so God is bringing that to the surface. Now, All these things that are being exposed, all these things that are being revealed, these priorities that are being uh, uh, brought to the surface, why is that happening? It's happening because, to some degree, we are suffering. 
Now, we're not, many of us aren't suffering horribly. Uh, maybe some people are suffering horribly. For most of us, it's kind of a low-grade suffering. It's, it's the suffering of inconvenience. It's the suffering of self-restraint. It's the suffering of annoyance. Uh, there are certainly people that are suffering far more than we are, but suffering has this ability. Suffering, discomfort, discomfort, unease, challenges, obstacles, have this ability to bring things to the surface. And those things that are brought to the surface can be good or bad. Uh, the way that the Bible talks about suffering relates strongly to the way we think of passion. The biblical word, both in uh, Greek and in Latin, the word for suffering is the, word, the English word for passion. Now, when we think of passion, I say, I've said this about a thousand times, by the way, over the years, so hopefully you already know this. The way we think of passion, the English word passion in America is we think of excitement. I'm passionate about something. I'm zealous. I, I get worked up. I, I get loud. I get happy. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about something. I have passion, right? Well, that word passion comes from the Greek and Latin words pathos, which means suffering. Now, in a way, we, I think we already knew this. If you saw the, story, the, the movie The Passion of the Christ, well, and we, anytime they ever do a passion play in a church that has to do with the crucifixion, it's always about the sufferings of Jesus. Because passion means suffering. Uh, if you go way back in a church history and tradition or you just grew up in a more liturgical church, they might have lit in paschal candles around Easter time to reflect on the suffering, paschal from passion or pathos, to reflect on the suffering of Jesus. So when the Bible talks about suffering, that concept corresponds most closely to what we think of when we think of passion. The Bible uses the word passion differently than we use the word passion. Usually when the Bible uses the word passion, it's talking about sexual immorality, things like lust. Uh, and so the way the Bible uses passion and the way we use passion are totally different. When I use the word passion today, I want you to understand I'm using the English word passion. I'm not talking about sexual immorality, which is how that word is used in the Bible. The, the biblical word I'm gonna use today is suffering, the modern word I'm going to use today is passion. When you merge suffering and passion, you begin to understand them, actually, because how do you know what you're passionate about? You'll suffer for it, right? That's how you know what you're passionate about. You'll go through something for it. I mean, I'm passionate about my kids, and so I'll suffer for my kids. Do you know how many times over the years I've listened to Baby Shark? I mean, it's got a pretty, like, fire beat to it, but... Um, Baby Shark is not my cup of tea. There's hardly any Bon Jovi relevance in Baby Shark. And so uh, the money that I've spent, the long lines that I've waited in, you know, the, the, the suffering that my, and, you know, and my wife a little bit too has suffered for our children uh, over the years. But, you, but you're okay with that because it's your kids and you love them, Right? You're willing to suffer for the things that you're passionate about. Same for the church, same for the neighborhood, same for other things that we care deeply about. We'll sacrifice and suffer for those things. And sacrifice is actually the word for, it's when our suffering and our passion meet, we make sacrifices, right? And so I want to talk about that concept 
because 2020 is a year that many people are suffering, but it's also a year that many people are discovering their passions, and it's a year that many people are making sacrifices, and all these things are being brought to the surface. Uh, Suffering is God's way of testing motives. All throughout the scripture, suffering is God's way of testing motives. When the motives are false or ungodly, they are exposed, confronted, and purified. That's actually how a lot of the Old Testament works. There's this cycle in the history of Israel in the Old Testament. They experience great blessing, and then they get puffed up. Oh, we're invincible. We're indestructible. We don't have to obey. We don't have to rely on God. Nothing can touch us. Well, sure enough, they get touched, and they get humbled. And that's kind of actually sometimes the danger of blessing is the the, uh, self-confidence that we get out of it and think that we're untouchable and invincible when we're not. And so they're humbled, and they many times go into some sort of exile where they're either under another nation's government or they're removed from their homes and uh, taken into exile in another place, or like in Exodus, they're in slavery in Egypt, and they experience this cycle of blessing, arrogance, humility, suffering, repentance, blessing, humility, and it's this cycle. Have you seen that cycle with Israel in the Bible? It happens a couple times throughout the Old Testament. And so uh, suffering purifies motives. When Israel suffered, when they were in slavery, when they were in exile, eventually all that hardship caused them to repent and return back to God. Now, suffering also has a way of testing our good motives and our true motives. Sometimes we don't know why we do something until we suffer for it, and then all of a sudden, our true motives are discovered. Then they are challenged, and if those motives are found to be good motives, they are solidified, and all of a sudden, we know why we do what we do. So suffering is God's way of testing motives. False motives are exposed, confronted, and purified. True motives are discovered, challenged, and solidified, and suffering engages the entire heart. I mean, when you're confused, that's mostly up here, right? But when you, when you suffer, when you go through a hardship, when you make a sacrifice, it hits you here, here, here. That's my wallet, for those that don't understand. Uh, I mean, it, it hits you here, your, clo- your time. I mean, it hits you, your whole person. When you go through something that's a hardship, that's suffering, your whole person is engaged in that experience. Now, I share all this because Paul, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, <laughs> gives this compelling invitation to Timothy when in verse 3 he just says, suffer hardship with me. Not the best altar call I've ever heard. Not the best invitation that I've ever heard. I was thinking we should put that on our new uh, cards and website when we distribute them in the neighborhood. True Vine, suffer hardship with us. You know no one would show up for that, right? Uh, that's, that's not the way. It would. If we put cards out that said free coffee, child care, easy parking, there'd be plenty of people. But if we said, come, suffer hardship with us, I would almost be afraid of the people that showed up to that. So we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. It's kind of a short passage today. This is not 
a hard passage to understand. It is significantly more harder to apply and to live. So let me just read uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, 3 through 7. Paul says to Timothy, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So Paul invites Timothy to suffer with him. That's actually not the only time that happens. Uh, he does that just uh, the previous chapter in t- 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. He says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. This, is, this uh, join with me in suffering or suffer with hardship with me is very different than the way that the gospel is presented nowadays many times. It's, it's often presented as a uh, one-stop shop to fix all things in your life. It's not presented as an invitation to make sacrifices for God, and I want us to use suffering and sacrifice almost interchangeably today. In fact, I'm gonna use them almost interchangeably. So Paul uses three different illustrations to explain uh, the type of sacrifice or suffering that he's inviting Timothy into, but why does Paul invite Timothy? Why does he say, suffer hardship with me? I think the way we would say it today is, well, because misery loves company. Now, misery loves company is kind of this negative way to say it. I, th- I do think it's true, though. The way I would say it in a more positive sense is fellowship alleviates suffering, not misery loves company. When you're going through a hard time, having someone who can go through the hard time with you is incredibly helpful. Having someone who can commiserate, who can't, which is to have misery with, someone who can relate, someone who's willing to enter into the suffering and maybe even possibly lift some of the burden of that suffering with you is incredibly helpful. Now, really quickly, I'm gonna return to 2 Timothy, but recently I've been reading and studying the book of Job. And if you don't know the story of Job, I'll just very quickly summarize. Job was a righteous man who lost everything. He did not lose everything because of sin. He actually lost everything because of his righteousness which is an interesting idea, that your righteousness could cost you something. Job lost, all of his kids died, all of his uh, belongings were destroyed, his house, his health, essentially in one day. And Job had some people around him who were not very helpful. This is what Job's wife said, are you still holding on to your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? She must have had a life insurance policy out on him. It's two weeks in a row, life insurance reference. She, because Job knew that he, Job knew that he did not bring this suffering on himself and so he knew that he was righteous and he did not blame God and uh, his wife said, why don't you just get it over with, curse God and die. And then Job had three or four friends that came and they had this concept in their mind that All suffering is caused by wickedness and all blessing is caused by righteousness. Today, that's called the prosperity gospel. 
Job and his friends were forerunners of the prosperity gospel. And so Job's friends all spout off different versions of the prosperity gospel. Well, surely God is just, and so if God is just and you're suffering, therefore you must have done something to deserve this. And if you, weren't, if you were as righteous as you say you are, Job, you wouldn't be suffering. And so these are not good friends. These are not helpful. These are not the type of friends that we want to be. These are not the type of people that you want to have suffering in your life. Uh, su- sorry, suffering alongside of you in your life. Paul's inviting Timothy to suffer alongside of him, to make sacrifices alongside of him. And he uses three illustrations for how that sacrifice and suffering is going to look. The illustrations are a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Okay? A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. If you're ever looking to learn how to write an easy three-point sermon, this is one. It's there for you. It's perfect. Paul almost knew, I guess, that we were going to be teaching this over and over for thousands of years. The first thing that Paul uses to illustrate the type of suffering and sacrifice that he's inviting Timothy into, he says in verse 3 and 4, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So I want to think about how Paul is using a soldier or someone who is enlisted in the military as an example or an illustration of the types of sacrifices that we are called to to follow Jesus. Now, I want you also to set aside what you know about modern military because Paul wrote this in the first century uh, under Roman occupation. And so uh, we're not talking about 2020 in the army or the marines, we're talking 2,000 years ago, what was the military like? Here's what it was like to join the military when Paul was writing this. You enlisted when you were probably 18, 19, or 20, you enlisted in the military. You were going to be sent far away from home. You were not allowed to marry. Your commitment was for 20 years. Not two, not four, not five. You signed up for 20 years. You were not allowed to marry. You were not allowed to own a home. Your chances of surviving were 50%. You had a 50-50 shot at surviving your term in the military. You could not see your family. There was no leave. You know, nowadays in the military, there's leave. You can get married. You can own a home. You might be able to go home for a holiday. Maybe your spouse, your wife is having a baby. You can maybe get leave possibly to see the birth of your child. None of this is happening in the military that Paul's talking about. So they're taking a 20-year commitment, 20 years, 20 years, leaving their family because they're going to be sent off to the far reaches of the Roman Empire. They're going to go be sent off, they're not going to see their parents. Their parents potentially could die during that 20 years. Not going to be at the funeral. Won't even know that your parents have died until you return. You just lost the ages of essentially 20 to 40 to start a family. You don't own a home, so you're behind everyone else 
when you do get out of the military, you're starting where other people started when they were in their early 20s. You're starting in your 40s. Look at the sacrifices that they had to make to join the military. That's why uh, Paul says to Timothy, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. What are the affairs of everyday life? Starting a family, owning a home, being part of a community. These are all things that the soldiers in those days were not able to be a part of. Uh, This was a 100% total commitment. And why did they make sure that they didn't get caught up or entangled in the affairs of everyday life? So that they could please their commanding officer. Uh, Pleasing your commanding officer was of highest concern because this commanding officer was your family now. You, You didn't get out in two years, four years, five years and move on. You didn't get to go on leave. Like I said, this commanding officer is responsible for your life. 50% chance of death. I hope you have a good commanding officer. I hope you have a commanding officer that you have a good relationship with. Because in order to trust that person and for him to trust you, you're going to need to have a good relationship, right? Because everyone's life is on the line every battle that they go into. So to have a good relationship with the commanding officer and to be able to please the commanding officer was a high priority uh, to those in the military at the time. Now, uh, Gordon Fee, who's a New Testament scholar, who he commented on this passage. He said, Timothy must give himself even to the point of great suffering to wholehearted devotion to his commanding officer. So who is Timothy's commanding officer? He wasn't in the military, so who's his commanding officer? Jesus. Who's our commanding officer? Jesus. Right, So we want to make sure that we are making the sacrifices necessary, that we're not getting caught up in every little entanglement so that we can please our commanding officer. So now, I hope you don't hear me saying that we can't get married, we can't start families, we can't have homes, you know, we can't do that. that. The metaphor makes this jump to where the things that we got, get caught up in are often like, you don't, you know, you don't have to, spend 12 hours a day watching the news, cut it down to six hours a day. You, know, you, you don't have to know every little detail of every current event that's happening. You don't have to be involved in every committee in your town. You don't have to be anxious and spread so thin because you're involved in every little detail of everyday life. Does that make sense? He, Paul, Paul's saying to Timothy, you're going to have to let those little details go and focus on pleasing the Lord. And so sometimes, you know, I, I know I've, I've been in community meetings that just seem like meticulous. I, like, I can't, I would go to civic association meetings and go home and tell my wife, I have no idea why I go to those meetings. Now, there was one meeting that I found was incredibly, like, important we had to vote on who could serve, what restaurants could serve chicken wings in the neighborhood, and I'm, thank God to this day that I was there for that, because I don't know that they'd have got that right. So now gas stations are allowed to serve chicken wings in my neighborhood, and that's the way it should be. So we don't need to get caught up in every detail of everyday life. We want to please the Lord. When a soldier is considering the responsibilities we discovered that they are willing to sacrifice their own personal freedoms 
in order to win the battle. And that's the type of sacrifice that Paul's calling Timothy to with this soldier illustration. Timothy, you're going to suffer hardship with me. Like a soldier, you're going to suffer your own pers- uh, sacrifice your own personal freedoms. There are things that we could do. As Christians, there are rights that we have that sometimes we set aside, just like Jesus did, right? Jesus set aside his rights to come take on human flesh, live as a human being, die for us. At any point, he could have said, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm God. I don't have to be doing this. But he chose to set aside his rights as God and come and limit himself as a human being and live on our behalf and die on our behalf. So how can we suffer hardship uh, the way that Paul was inviting Timothy? By setting aside our personal rights and personal freedoms in order to win victory. Second illustration that Paul uses is of an athlete. It's just one verse in verse five. If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. What does the phrase according to the rules mean? Now, it does kind of sound like, well, well, if you're you know, playing basketball, you, you compete according to the basketball rules. If you are playing baseball, you compete according to the baseball rules. It does kind of sound like that. But what Paul's referring to here is actually a uh, cultural practice these are the, he's referring to the Olympic athletes, like the original Olympic athletes, and they all had to make a commitment to train for 10 months prior to the Olympics. Those are the rules that Paul's referring to here. He's saying, when you, come, uh, when you consider your suffering with me, Timothy, I want you to think of these Olympic athletes who make 10, did I say 10-year commitment? I meant 10-month. It's a 10-month commitment prior to the Olympics to prepare Uh, in this day, in Paul's day, to prepare for the Olympics. So he's saying, Timothy, here's the sacrifice you're gonna have to make like an athlete. It's a sacrifice of preparation. You're gonna have to put in the work to prepare yourself. I have found in my walk with Jesus that a lot of my life with Jesus and anything I do ministry-wise relies heavily on what happens behind closed doors. Here's what I mean by that. I'll spend some time reading the Bible in the morning and praying, and two days later I'll find, boy, I really, I'm glad I read that passage because I needed it today. It came up in a counseling situation or it came up in another situation. I'm glad that I put that time in. Same with preparing a sermon. Same with praying for a person who's sick. Same with dealing with stuff at home. When there's nothing to draw from because we haven't done the preparation, we draw from our own brokenness, our own junk. When, there's not, when we haven't been filling up with the Spirit, filling up with Scripture, filling up with thoughts of God, we just overflow whatever junk we happen to have, our pain, our anxiety, our fear. And so I think actually a, a huge part of the Christian life is just continually preparing being in God's word, being in the spirit, worshiping, like having your mind clicked on to what God's doing because you never know when the time is gonna come that you're gonna have to draw from those things and when you have to draw from them, you're gonna want them to be in your soul. And so Paul's talking to Timothy about preparation, putting, it, putting in the work uh, and there's a reward. The reward 
is the reward of the preparation. Uh, he refers to a prize that he's going to receive. The idea of a prize, a reward, is so common in the New Testament. Jesus talks about rewards and prizes so frequently. This is something that I think many Christians don't think about enough, that there are both earthly and heavenly rewards for following Jesus. Uh, now, it, I don't think they're trophies. I don't think it's a cash prize. But I do think that there's a real, tangible effect of faithfulness to Jesus, and that is both physical in the now and also spiritual, uh, both in the now and to come. But there, there's actually a reward for following Jesus, and there's a prize that we receive. An athlete is willing to endure the sacrifice of preparation in order to win the prize. So there's a soldier who sacrifices their freedoms, there's the athlete who sacrifices in preparation, and then finally, there's the farmer. This is the one that I feel most comfortable talking about here today. The farmer, it says in verse six, just one very short verse, the hardworking farmer ought to be first to receive his share of the crops. Look at the way that he describes the farmer, hardworking. Um, I hope I don't step on anyone's toes here. You know, no one does uh, the military as a hobby, right? I don't think anyone does that just as, in their free time as a hobby. Now, you might be a, an athlete in your free time. You might do that for a hobby. Do you know what people do uh, for a hobby that relates to farming? Gardening. Gardening is like when you're a, a farmer in your free time. It's a hobby. But can I tell you something? Gardening and farming are two totally different things. I understand that there's like seeds and dirt. I get that, involved in both. But farming is this incredibly uh, scaled practice that makes gardening look like a hobby, which in many cases it is. Farming, the planning and the preparation and the uh, resources that you need to farm in a way that is sustainable, where it's not just, oh, I hope I can have a couple tomatoes this year for a salad, but how can I feed the nation, which is what our farmers do, right? I know I sound like a hillbilly a little bit, but because I am. Uh, when farmers are farming, it's not just for their own benefit, it's to feed the community, right? Now, what happens if they're not diligent? The community goes hungry, right? And think about the work that a farmer has to put in. It's not just planting seed. They have to break up the ground first. The ground is sat fallow, unused through the whole winter. They have to break it up. Potentially, they have to rotate their crops even to different fields depending on what they're growing. They have to break up the ground, which means you're going over every square inch of dirt that you own, breaking it up. We have machines for that now. Then... Once the ground's broken up, you're doing this in the early spring, you're planting the seed for whatever you're growing, and then once you spend days or weeks putting the seeds in the ground, you get to look over your beautiful field and see dirt, just piles of dirt. Farming is not for the impatient. Farming is for people who are willing to put in the work, be diligent, and wait, and so 
you get a little excited when you see things popping up through the ground, and it is quite a sight, actually, to see an entire field. That I, when I was in uh, college in my summers, I worked on a farm. My mother still works on a farm, and so I would be a summertime farmer, and I had a farmer's tan for real. It was an actual farmer's tan. I wore overalls, all that stuff. I still have the overalls. I thought about wearing them today, but I was like, you won't take me seriously, so I'll wear them some other time. But I had a field to myself. It was my responsibility to work in this one field this one summer. I was the only person that worked in the field. It was a half a mile long by a half a mile wide, and I had to walk one end to the other checking individual plants to see how they were responding to, like, herbicides, pesticides, fertilizers, and all those things. And I would just spend all day in overalls walking, stopping, looking at this plant, walking, stopping, looking at this plant. And that's a little bit what farmers do. It's diligent. You have to water these. I mean, I can hardly water the plants in my office. There's five. Imagine having millions, millions and remember, these farmers that Paul's talking about don't have the technology that we have today. And so in order to feed the community, in order to do what they had to do, they had to be diligent. And they have to know the seasons. You don't put the seed in the ground in the winter, right? You have to know the seasons. You have to know the weather. You have to follow these types of things. You have to be on top of all of that. They didn't have weather reports like we do. And so... Uh, there's this diligence. So a farmer sacrifices and suffers diligently as they patiently await the crop. The soldier suffers and sacrifices their personal freedoms. An athlete sacrifices through preparation. A farmer uh, sacrifices and is diligent for the crop. Each one of these people, the athlete, the soldier, and the farmer, receive something through their sacrifice. The soldier, victory. The athlete, a prize. And the farmer receives a crop. There is always a purpose when we sacrifice for Jesus. Whether it's a crop, a prize, or a victory, when we make sacrifices for Jesus, there is always a purpose to it. There's something that's gonna be on the other side of that sacrifice. We don't sacrifice without purpose. We don't sacrifice without intention. We don't sacrifice without a goal in mind. There, there's always a goal in mind, a purpose, or something when we sacrifice for Jesus. Now, this week as I was looking over soldier, athlete, farmer, and I was reading through this, it hit me kind of how intense these illustrations are that Paul's using. Soldier, athlete, farmer. They're all hardworking. All of them are busting their humps and breaking a sweat. All of them are working hard, right? These are all people who are gonna feel pain. And this is what struck me. None of this is casual, right? I mean, he, this is not a hobby. This is not what we do in our free time. It's our identity. It's how we're known. It's what we put our time toward. Nothing about the soldier illustration, the athlete illustration, or the farmer illustration is casual. I mean, we're supposed to be soldiers, not civilians, 
when it comes to serving the Lord, right? If we're a soldier, not a civilian, that means that we're not just, oh, thank you for your service for those that have done all the ministry. We're actually participating in the ministry, right? We're, we're doing our responsibility. We're taking up what we're supposed to be doing. We're, we're, when it comes to serving Jesus, you are not a civilian. You're a soldier. The athlete illustration. We're not spectators, guys. We're not fans who cheer on the, those, those that take on the responsibility of athletes. Uh, a friend of mine named Ron Walborn describes football this way. 22 people who are badly in need of rest being watched by 50,000 people who are badly in need of exercise. That's a funny joke. It is funny. You can laugh. 20, football. 22 people who are badly in need of rest being watched by 50,000 people who are badly in need of exercise. Sometimes that describes the church. Yeah, or, or just who's following Jesus? A small group who's following hard and a large group who could stand to follow a little harder. The farmer, he's a producer, not just a consumer. Now he consumes a portion of what he produces, but he's not just a, we're not supposed to be just spiritual consumers who take, take, take. So the opposite of a soldier athlete, farmer, spirituality, would be a civilian, spectator, consumer spirituality. Don't do much, don't sacrifice much, consume a lot. And I do, I, I mean, I don't think I'm alone in this room as I'm looking at your faces. I do kind of think that American Christianity is more civilian, spectator, consumer Christianity than it is soldier, athlete, farmer Christianity. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, this sermon, I would love to hear someone preach this passage in a large church where a large audience could be challenged by this. And I just think this is what Paul's calling Timothy to when he says, suffer hardship with me. As a soldier, as an athlete, as a farmer, I think what Paul's expecting of Timothy is, okay, I will. And when I look at Timothy and I look at Paul and I look at the disciples and the apostles and I look at the New Testament, I think every single one of them that we celebrate was committed, fully committed to Jesus and fully committed to what Jesus was doing on the earth at that time. There was no, I mean, there, there were people that were half in, half out, but those people were always trouble, right? The ones that are held up as examples are always the ones that are fully in, fully engaged. And what I'm talking about this morning primarily is relationship to Jesus. I'm not, I'm not gonna ask you to attend a meeting today, give money today, volunteer for a ministry today. This is what I'm asking today, full devotion to Jesus. 
the way that a soldier is fully devoted to pleasing his commanding officer, the way that an athlete is fully devoted to his sport and winning the prize, the way that a farmer is fully devoted to seeing the crop realized, that we would be fully devoted to Jesus, even if it means suffering hardship. So I'm not asking you to join a ministry or write a check or show up to a gathering. I'm asking you to do something that is infinitely harder than those things to get your heart fully devoted to Jesus. Not a consumer, not a spectator, not a civilian, but a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Does that, all of that make sense? Now, I know that this is hard. As I said, Sometimes I'd almost wish you'd just ask me to come to a meeting and write a check because being fully devoted seems harder sometimes. There are things in our lives that keep us from full devotion to Jesus. And almost all of those things I would just put under the heading of self. Self-desires, self-aspirations, self-comfort, self all of those things, selfishness, that's what selfishness is. It's just total orientation toward yourself. Please yourself, make yourself happy, get what you want. You be you, do number one, all that stuff, which is horrible advice if you want a functioning society, by the way. So, these are the types of things that keep us from full devotion to Jesus. I love the stories in the Bible where people had these encounters with God and they're totally emptied of their selves. I mean, I, I know I tell these stories all the time, but Moses encountering a burning bush and he's like, I have to go see that. And he goes and he meets God and he has to take off his feet, uh, t not his feet, <laughs> take off his sandals. He kept his feet. That's helpful if you're gonna wander through the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, David before the Ark of the Covenant dancing, dancing to the point where his clothes came off, right? Do you remember what David's wife said? Oh, sarcastically, how dignified of you that you would dance out of your clothes because his wife, whose name was Michal, she was literally more concerned with dignity than reverence, right? I talk about Isaiah, who, who saw the Lord in Isaiah 6, lofty and exalted. And this was, this was not, Isaiah's response was not, hey, God, look at me. See everything I've been doing for you? Isn't it impressive? Isaiah said, oh, nuts. That's the Hebrew. I am undone. I am wasted. I am in big trouble. Daniel fell at his feet like he was dead. Paul was knocked off of a donkey. John fell on his face. When Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured, and I think it's Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration, they go up on a mountain with Jesus. All of a sudden, Jesus starts to glow, and you actually see Jesus as he is in Revelation. His face, it says his face shines like the sun. So in the transfiguration, his face shines. They all just, they're like, uh, you know, like they're freaking out. They don't know what to do. All of those moments, they're emptied of self. All of their, 
selfishness, all of their self-esteem, all of their self-confidence is melted away. And now we read all of those people giving their total lives to Jesus. Which is why I think Jesus says you're going to have to die to self. That stuff's going to have to die. If we're going to be fully devoted, if we're going to be soldiers, athletes, farmers for the Lord, all the self stuff has to die. We're going to have to sacrifice our rights that we have. We're going to have to sacrifice and prepare. We're going to have to sacrifice and be diligent about the things that God has called us to. I've asked the worship team if they would lead us in a closing song this morning because I want to give us an opportunity to respond. I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all response this morning, um, which is why I just want to create an opportunity for you to respond as the Lord is leading you. If you're here in the room and you would like to come up and kneel, we have not broken in this front of the stage as an altar yet, but if you would like to come up and pray here, you are welcome to do that. If you would rather handle business with God in your seat, you're welcome to do that as well. If you want to stand, stand. If you want to kneel at your seat, kneel. If you want to sit, that's fine. Those of you that are at home, uh, I think of Obed-Edom. I know that's a weird name. Old Testament guy who had the Ark of the Covenant in his house, which means his house became an altar. You can do that at home. Kneel at your couch if you need to. Stand. Do, you know, whatever you need to do to respond to God, wide open today, I just want to give you a couple of minutes to do that. So I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. I'm going to pray for us. They're going to lead us in worship. And then Pastor John Eric is going to conclude in a few minutes. Jesus, you have not called us to a casual faith. You have not called us to be lukewarm, half-hearted, partially devoted. Lord, I just renounce that approach to following you that would lead us to be civilians or spectators or consumers. And we adopt this approach to you that would lead us to be uh, soldiers, athletes, and farmers, Jesus, who would take this seriously, who would give our entire lives, that we would come suffer hardship, not just with Paul, but with you, that we would suffer hardship with you. The sacrifice that we return to you is nothing compared to the sacrifice that you made for us. And there, it is simply an act of gratitude, Jesus, when we return back to you sacrifices, when we suffer alongside of you, Jesus. So I ask that you would come and get our hearts, that you would come shape our minds, that you would change us from the inside out. Come win us over. Uh, crucify the self that's in us, the selfishness, the self-confidence, the self-pride. Come kill that, Jesus. Don't numb it. Don't silence it. Kill it. I ask that in your name, Lord. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.